following discussion is for educational purposes only and is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease. Please do not apply any of this information without first speaking with your doctor. What is up, everyone, and welcome to the Diabetes Podcast, where we discuss how to take control of your health and gain the freedom to live the life that you deserve. I'm Gary Pano, and with me is my co-host, Dr. Grady Donahoe, who is a board-certified chiropractic internist. And welcome back everyone and fellow diabetes to another episode uh we're really excited to record today and and just kind of almost uh have a looser conversation on some of the topics like insulin resistance and fats and things like that today so but we we normally do our segment burst my beta cells at the end but i miss grady so much not living with him i had a lot to before we start recording i had a lot to to burst my beta cells and talk with him. So we're going to start right away with burst my beta cells. So, uh, so Grady, what's something recently that whether it be about diabetes, your pump, all of everything working out, what's something that burst your beta cells recently? Yeah. So I, th- I feel like I've talked about this multiple times, but dealing with insurances and pharmacies and um, all that jazz um, is just super frustrating um, especially right now. Cause like I said, I, this year I changed to a different insurance plan. And as a result, I have to change the uh, mail order that I use for my pharmacy. And so right now, I'm just going to say it right now. I'm using Walgreens Alliance RX pharmacy and <laughs> it has been the worst experience I've ever had. Um, they're just, they just don't communicate very well. Um, with me or the doctor and it's just been a complete disaster so um so like i you know i've talked about how the insulin the generic insulin that um that they had sent was going bad very quickly the half-life was going mm-hmm. bad very quickly and so mm-hmm. um we had worked on i worked with my doctor on getting a prescription for the name brand Novolog, okay. and so he sent that in and he specifically said name brand only. And when I looked at my account online, it had the generic version of it. And so then I'm like, okay. So I called, I first called my, my doctor's nurse again. And I said, okay, I just want to make sure that you guys sent in um, specifically Novolog and not, you know, the generic version. She's like, yep. He specifically wrote down, Novolog or name brand only. And so I, I was like, okay. So then I, uh, oh, and then she's like, and they're supposed to tell us if they're going to change anything about the prescription before they do it. And so I think they had, I'm pretty sure they had already sent the insulin anyways. And, um, but I guess kind of fortunately they sent it to the wrong address. They sent it to the one in Nebraska which that one in Nebraska has never been associated with my account. So I don't even know how they got that. Oh man. So that was a whole ordeal too. So then 
Um, they had to return that because that's an overnight thing that they always, they usually ship insulin overnight. And so they had to reroute that. So that actually went back to their warehouse or whatever. But then when they sent the new one, they actually sent the Novolog. So they did something right there um, after screwing that up. So, um, so we, we got that worked out. And then I had to get new test strips, which somehow works seamlessly but wow <laughs> so how long if you had to guess how many total extra time from calling pharmacy walgreens doctor insurance company and then actually waiting well no I don't include that but just the extra time of coordinating all that stuff which isn't the time that it takes to um give yourself bolus give you know do all the actual diabetes things mm-hmm. just the logistics of it how much extra time do you think you spent recently on this endeavor? I would say at least six to eight hours. Six to eight hours. Being on six hold to- and, um, you know, talking with people. Cause I mean, initially it was just a complete mess. I was on phone on the, on the phone with my insurance company, um, with a representative there. And so he actually took me through, which I was very appreciative of the insurance guy, he actually stayed on the phone with me and helped me coordinate with the pharmacy. And even mm-hmm. he, and even he's like, they're just kind of throwing us around the ringer. Like they're not giving us any solid thing. So, um, which I was appreciative of him, but at the same time it took way longer than it needed to. Sure. Sure. Yeah. That's uh that's crazy. I've definitely, <clears throat> I've definitely had similar experiences getting thrown around the ringer with insurance companies. And, and I think a lot of t- diabetics do both, type mostly type one but i'm sure type two as well Mm -hmm. uh and so like i remember i had test strips and insulin denied for me because somewhere in the insurance like logistics trade they thought i was type two Mm -hmm. like why are you testing so much why are you using so much insulin i was like why why what do you mean why who are you to (laughs) say why and then anyways so but you spending six to eight hours and over the course of two weeks how long has this been you think three weeks? Well, probably a couple months actually. Okay, but still, eight out. We'll just round it up. Eight hours over just round two, one to two months. I mean, how many more things could you have done? How much more than extra stress has that put on you? And I think that's something that non-diabetics really don't think about that a diabetic goes through. It's not even because mm-hmm. sugar it, man. It's not only that. It's like also with all this confusion. I am so scared that they are going to put something through and then it's not going to be covered by my insurance and therefore I'm going to be charged full price for it and mm-hmm. I'm not going to be able to pay for it because it's just, you know, that all that stuff is just super expensive. And so like, you know, I kept checking, kept checking to make sure before they sent it, it had covered it so that the price was lower because, you know, at mm-hmm. some points I would check it and it would be like, like for the test strips, for example, before the insurance went through, it was like, I think like 900 bucks for 700 strips. And I'm like, what? there's no way I can afford that right now. <laughs> and, uh, but eventually the, uh, insurance came through and, um, got it back down. But, mm. but yeah, I was just like, that was probably one of the biggest stressors for me. It was like, I hope, with all this confusion going on, I don't just like go bankrupt because of it. Sure. No, that's a scary feeling. 
uh, especially then even a scary feeling of you getting, let's say, just the insulin that wasn't really working with your body. You do mm -hmm. all this, they send you the wrong thing, and but because of timing, you have to use it, and then, you know, and it literally is affecting your health. Um, but that, that's also just we, you and I really haven't talked to or just had an episode just yet about insurances mm -hmm. uh, and just pharmacy. But that $900 for 700 strips, that was probably the list price. That's probably like mm -hmm. the actual objective price where if you didn't have insurance, that's what you would have paid. Yep. But what insurance, what, what pharmacy companies do and what companies do is they make this price and whatever insurance they're in, they have a negotiated agreed contracted rate that drops mm -hmm. it down. And then based on your policy is depends on if you're going to a deductible, copay, whatever, uh, that makes it what you as the end consumer are. But, but that is all started upon whatever the number they decided to say was the list price. Mm -hmm. And that list price essentially is just say, like, almost like a thought of uh, you go to the grocery store and you see like a, you know, 25% off discount and you're like, Oh, great. But it, somehow the grocery store got away with raising the price by 25 percent so it's mm -hmm. like the same price anyways yeah not exactly the same thing that companies do both medical and, and pharmacy companies do but you get the idea that they just jack up the initial price so that when the contracted rate comes in with insurance it's a lower rate but that and then you pay a different rate but it's it's all based on the initial thing and they there's no regulation in that and how frustrating that is to somebody where they can't they can't have any say in it yeah and look at that price difference so I, well, I guess I didn't say what I actually paid for. I think it was you like, not. I think it ended up being like $125, something like that. And so look at that price difference, almost 900 or sorry, almost $800 different. Do you really think that they're losing that much money off of that? No, <laughs> they are not. They're still making money off of that $125 that I paid. Yeah. No, it's that's it's insane, and I think maybe in the future, sometime in the future, uh, before the year's up, we'll we'll have to like put our brains together and think about it like a objective, logistical way to talk about what we deal with with insurance companies. Maybe even get a little more technical um, and do some more research about it all too. But because it, it's just so frustrating for diabetics that don't know and that just literally are helpless, for mm -hmm. diabetics that do know but don't know how to fight it for everyone else. Like, uh, yeah, I'm, not, I'm about to go on more rants about it. So, um, all right, let's get to you. So what was your okay. <laughs> burst your beta cells? So, uh, it was burst my beta cells almost cause I was scared. <laughs> and mm. so it wasn't like this frustrating thing, but, uh, I'll just quickly tell a story that, um, I briefly told you. So this past weekend, I got some really good news in terms of, uh, my licensing for, being a chiropractor in the state of Wisconsin and things like that. I was very excited. So naturally go and celebrate. Right. And uh, I'm like to think of myself as a little more down to earth than maybe you Grady. <laughs> but uh, so I celebrated then with getting margaritas and, uh, and so I was drinking a little bit on Saturday night as a type one and type one, there's a risk of being low and there's a lot of risk of being high, but a lot of type ones can actually unfortunately pass away from drinking from low blood sugar. Now in a non-diabetic that's because, or in a non-diabetic alcohol can rate or lower blood sugars. Ethanol can lower your blood sugar if you are a non-diabetic. So there's still that biochemistry that's still like really not understood in a type one. 
but that's still a thing. And most type ones that do pass away from alcohol ends up because of lack of cortical function or lack of like using your brain and over giving yourself insulin and passing away. And so I was out having margaritas, enjoying myself, being safe or trying to be as safe as possible. And I woke up, uh, you know, at 1230 with low blood sugar, my blood sugar was 29. And when you wake up with low blood sugar, you go, oh my God, what's going on? Uh, you know, you got the adrenaline rush, you got cortisol on you and you're dropping real low. And I had at least a hundred plus grams of carbs between seven glucose tabs and a crap ton of blueberries and strawberries and probably even closer to 150. And as I'm eating it and it's kind of like coming back alive, but so low, I'm like, oh man, I'm over bolusing for, or overcorrecting for sure. Like I'm definitely overeating, but at this moment I don't care because it's late at night and I want to go back to bed. And then uh, I wake up. And if you overeat, you think you're going to be super high. My blood sugar was 80 mm, six hours yeah. later. So even though that sounds like, oh, that was great. <laughs> what that really means is that I was <laughs> dropping so low, so fast. And despite having 100, 150 grams of carbs, man, my blood sugar was, was fighting. <laughs> it was fighting trying to get up there. And if I didn't eat what I did and I was a little less careful, then – who knows what could have unfortunately happened. Mm -hmm. uh, so a lesson to take away to maybe still kind of take things back a bit, even in celebration times. Yes. Yes. That is exactly the reason why I have never drank before. Cause it's just, <laughs> I mean, it's just to me, it's not worth the risk and because mm -hmm. it's just, it's scary. Like that yeah. situation is scary. Like, um, you know, a moment, a moment later and you, you know, may not have had the wherewithal to get downstairs and eat something or something like that. Right. Um, so yeah, scary stuff. Mm -hmm. And I say that openly and and from a vulnerable standpoint, even on this podcast, uh, just cause we're, we're all human mm -hmm. and we make mistakes, but yeah, it's super scary. And I probably would have been better if I had a margarita or no margaritas. And even that now Chenny cat, <laughs> Anyways, um, I had a song stuck in my head and, um, yeah, it could have, it could have been better, but we live, we learn, we do better. So that was kind of like my, uh, like fearful burst my beta cells. Almost. Yeah. Um, but the whole point of that is that there's a lot that goes into what we do. There's a whole lot and understanding things like insulin resistance is, just as complex as living with all of this stuff. Uh, you know, last episode we started talking about insulin resistance and fat a little more, um, insulin resistant mechanisms. But uh, to this time, this podcast, uh, Grady and I have read through a review article that I thought was very thorough. That was published near the end of 2017 in the American Journal of Physiology, Endocrinology, and Metabolism. Wow, it's a mouthful. Mm -hmm. and um, titled Modeling Insulin Resistance in Rodents by Altering in Diet, uh, What Have High-Fat and High-Calorie Diets Revealed? And even that the title says rodents, there's plenty of discussion on humans as well. Uh, so we kind of just wanted to walk through these, uh, some of these points in this article and just talk about them and what we think about some of these points and then what we think about clinically and how we live our daily lives. So... Uh, first of all, 
it kind of starts off by talking about uh, just using different types of models, either whether it be different types of rats or humans uh, in insulin resistance studies. Always something to keep in mind, mm -hmm. right? So, Grady, what are your thoughts about using rats and different types of rats with uh, these types of studies? Yeah, so I thought this, was, this section of this article was um, a bit eye-opening. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it's helpful for people to read just to, like I said, open your eyes, but also get a little more, a little bit more information on mice and how, depending on the type of mice that the said study that you're looking at is using, um, it can somewhat skew those results. Because if you're using something that's blocking out a gene, it's going to be different than something than a myo, than a mouse that's actually put. I would say epigenetically in a situation. So for example, if they um, block out a gene that creates insulin resistance versus taking a mouse and doing stuff to it, whether that's feeding it something or, or not allowing it to exercise and putting that mouse then in a situation where it develops insulin resistance and then testing stuff on that, it's going to be, it's going to be different because the mechanisms are different and the pathways in the body have now changed because genes are turned off and other genes are turned on. So um, I think mm -hmm. in regards to that, it's very helpful. Um, and I think it's something to pay attention to if you're gonna be doing and looking into a lot of research or hanging your hat on a lot of research because if it's on you know, models, that, models of mice that aren't necessarily congruent with you know, real life situations, then that data just might not be as accurate for you know, human people. And so, mm -hmm. um, so I think it's something to keep in mind and something to be aware of. Um, so that way you can navigate the confusion that science can bring because um, there's a lot of conflicting data out there um, with any situation and any topic. So um, to be able to navigate that a little bit more clean or is going to um, help you understand what's actually going on. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And I think that was the whole point of why they put this part of the article first. It mm -hmm. was that, you know, there's a lot of good research to learn or a lot of good information to understand by genetically modifying rats and seeing how it affects their metabolism. In fact, that's how we actually learn about a lot of things. What happens when this thing isn't there? Mm -hmm. But and that's how we really under, start understanding leptin deficiency and what ghrelin does and a lot of these other hormones that play with your hypothalamus to your gut and all these other signalings um, that can create obesity. Like sometimes people are literally just obese, not because they're big bones or they don't have self-control, but there is actually a deficiency where they don't make a hormone where it tells them to, there's no signal to say stop eating, mm -hmm. um, for example. But like you said, if you're using those models, uh, but yet, and then trying to understand what's going on with insulin resistance in those models. Let's just use that. So in a rat that doesn't have leptin, for example, or something, but then you're trying to apply that information to humans that do have leptin. That doesn't really make too much sense because mm -hmm. trying to compare apples to oranges, not just because it's rats and mice and humans, but because it's literally the, the metabolism is, is just different. And, they end up conclusion concluding you should the best way to study it is by or summarizing this section by saying the best way to study metabolic dysfunctions 
is by doing a DIO or um, dietary induced obesity. So literally what we do mm-hmm. and we as humans, we feed until we are obese. Uh, <laughs> and that's what these rats do. We do sometimes a lot of cruel things to rats and I've definitely read some methods about some different <laughs> things that rats have go under and bless their little hearts. Um, oh, rats actually have big hearts. Mice have small hearts, but uh, sidetrack. And so literally feeding a, a mouse, you know, you really want to, conscientious of what the methods are that being said not only but you shouldn't only use methods to uh, neglect what a study concludes to I was listening to a TED talk recently and about conspiracy theories and if you disagree with somebody's point the easiest way to then solidify your point that you believe your biasy is by finding a reason to poke holes at their logic. And in scientific literature, that's the method section. That's saying, well, that doesn't really count. You can't really think about it because this is all wrong. Mm-hmm. And it's this balance, this yin and yang of understanding what's in the method section and what's that limitation, not discrediting it, understanding where it's coming from and trying to apply it in a, a objective way um, opposed to just poking holes and saying, Oh, doesn't matter. Uh, they only use a genetically modified rat. I don't care. Uh, mm-hmm. No. And so I thought that was an interesting point I, I've heard recently. And, uh, but that's definitely, that's why you can't just skip the methods if you're trying to actually read science. Mm-hmm. Anyways, the, the article then continues once it can, tries to convince you, DIO is the best way to study mice and rats in terms of obesity and metabolic dysfunction. Then starts to talk about insulin action and insulin resistance and different tissues Mm -hmm. and how they're different. And so the three tissues that it focuses on are arguably the tissues that have the most impact on overall insulin resistance. So Mm -hmm. your whole body can be insulin resistant, but then different tissue types. And when I say tissue types, that could mean muscles that could mean your brain could mean uh, your skin you know it could mean your adipose could mean your liver kidneys etc literally any organ any tissue has the potential to have a different mechanism and so the three it focuses on are muscle liver and adipose so uh before i have a couple thoughts on on diving into muscle um and so I'll ask you some questions in a second, Doc. But uh, I think the one reason to always focus on muscle is not just because it's readily available, but because as humans, it literally makes up 20 to 40% of our mass. Mm-hmm. It literally makes up, if, <laughs> if you didn't understand muscle physiology, you re- wouldn't have a great picture of overall body metabolism. Mm-hmm. And when we, then, you know, maybe us as chiropractors, as we are working with your body and maybe not this specific, you know, function medicine way, but just with your body muscles and your skeleton are so important on your overall health for that reason. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, like you don't just, you shouldn't just work out just to be look good in a bikini or in a swimsuit or for the summertime but because your muscles are literally impact everything to do with your health. Mm-hmm. And when you work out, you shouldn't be just thinking about your heart. You should be thinking about your whole entire body. 
because it literally impacts everything. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You're going to impact um, all different types of physi physiology when you're exercising and moving. Um, so whether that's glucose, glucose metabolism, whether that's uh, blood flow, whether that's brain function, because um, you know exercise is stimulating the brain, and so you need that to keep a healthy brain. Um, all that stuff is very important. And so if you're neglecting um, your understanding of muscles or you're just neglecting muscles in general um, because you're not using them or you're not trying to stimulate that, then um, it's going to have a big impact on your health. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when it comes to mealtime, your muscles consume about anywhere from 40 to 80% of the overall glucose load that's inputted to your body at that time. Uh, so your resting glucose uh, and metabolism rate uh, before and after exercise completely changes what happens at that meal. Oh, yeah. So if you go on social media and you look at diabetics who are athletes or you look at um, any kind of athlete and try to look at their metabolism, like it's, it's drastically different because they have trained their body and affected their whole body from just doing exercise, which mm -hmm. you can take really simple steps to start moving and actually start affecting those things. Mm -hmm. And those changes, those changes in metabolism, those things can be somewhat long-term, but I would say the most important thing about that is the consistency of it. If you're consistent with getting those muscles activated, that change in physiology is going to be much more deep rooted. It's going to be much, much more effective. You're going to notice much more change with that and on more of a consistent basis. If you're kind of off and on kind of here and there, maybe like, you know, once or twice a week or um, even like three times a week, some people need more than that. Um, if you stay consistent with it, then that change in metabolism is uh, much more, uh, I don't want to say permanent, but much more long lasting um, than it is if you're just kind of hit and miss um, and really random with your workouts. So like you could work out three days a week, but if you're working out three days in a row and then the rest of the week you're off, your body's just kind of all over the place. You're kind of yo-yoing back and forth with metabolism, um, with weight loss, with blood flow, all that stuff. So being consistent with it is, I think, the most important thing. Hmm. So what are, what are ways that you personally then do that with, uh, like what's, what is your current like workout regimen right now for the purpose of, you know, metabolism? Yeah. So that's a great point because this is something I've been focusing on in the last, um, probably the last two or three months now that we're uh, back in the gym. Yeah. Um, so I've been doing, I, I started a new workout program. Actually it's an old workout program that I, um, used to do several years mm -hmm. ago. And so essentially Back what it is, like 280? no, a little bit after that, <laughs> Great I, used still, to rest. I still have uh, those workouts, but I'm like, ah, man, I don't know if I'm man enough to do that right now. <laughs> Grady used, if Grady used to wrestle heavyweight and, uh, was a big football player back in the day. And you wouldn't believe it if you looked at him now in person, <laughs> but anyways, go on. But yeah, so, uh, right now what I'm doing is I'm working out lifting weights. When I say working out, I'm lifting weights um, about five to six days a week, depending on how my body feels. If I, my body starts to feel like it's kind of worn down, then I'll take, you know, uh, an extra day off. 
Um, but I stay consistent with that. But on my days off, I will do some sort of exercise still. So whether that's cardio or um, something to get my body moving, something to get my heart pumping. Because if I totally quit, especially if it's two days, one day I'm probably okay with. Um, but if it's two days, I will definitely start to notice a decrease in metabolism. Specifically, obviously, since I'm monitoring my blood sugar, I could see it right away with that. Um, I start to, my blood sugars start to kind of creep up a little bit and um, stay a little bit higher. So if I stay somewhat consistent with it, then I can maintain that metabolism. I don't have to go super hard. Um, I, I Honestly, I probably don't have to work out or lift weights six days a week, but um, that's just what I like to do. Um, but the, the point is, um, even if I wasn't working out six days a week as far as lifting weights, I would try to be exercising at least six days a week, if not every day of the week. And like I said, exercise can look differently for different people. So that can be lots of cardio um, or lots of um, lifting weights or circuit training, stuff like that. Um, I think especially in regards to, like I said, maintaining metabolism and keeping consistent, um, if you can do something that gets your heart pumping, get your muscles moving every day, doesn't have to be, you know, you don't have to kill yourself every day. But if you can do something every day, you can kind of help maintain that. Like I said, the consistency is that most important part. Yeah, no, I, I agree completely. Um, you know, and are you, what about, so you're running, you're lifting, are you rolling around doing jiu-jitsu right now too? No, I have not been since, um, since COVID and everything, but um, gotcha. hopefully that'll start back up soon. Gotcha. Okay. Um, are there days that you do like two a days, like you run and you lift or you do like stretching and lifting or, you know, something like that? Yeah. So I'll, I'll run. Well, since I lost my headphones, I haven't been running as much cause I like running with my headphones and I need something to distract myself. But, um, mm. it's um, called mental strength there, yeah, Grady. Get some, get some, <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Um, but usually I'll run two to three times a week. And like I said, I'll try to always hit or at least try to hit that on my off days. Um, but I will do that also on my lifting days, especially if it's um, nice and sunny and hot out. I like running when it's sunny out. So weird. Um, okay, nice. Cool. Uh, yeah, I agree. Consistency and just moving your body uh, just for the pure fact. Again, your muscles are literally, you know, such a large part of your body mass and you're not just doing it for you you're not just doing it to look good you're not just even doing it for your heart you're doing it for your diabetes you're doing it for your family you're doing it so you can pick up your family you can hug your family you can mm -hmm. see your family uh every movement that you do and the more consistent you are with your movement the better your life will be just period yep. there's no doubt about it yep now and in the long term because i have mm -hmm. a patient right now that I'm really, I'm really working on. He's a type two and, um, he doesn't, he doesn't like following his diet very much. He doesn't, he really doesn't like doing any exercise and I had to have a heart to heart with him. And, um, I was like, you got to think about not only the short term, but also what's your, what's your life going to look like later on. And I told him uh, my story about my grandpa and how he started losing, uh, fingers and toes and he eventually had both of his legs amputated and I don't know anybody who would want to have a quality life like that um, 
So make those decisions now, make those habits now. So that way you set yourself up for a higher quality of life now and later on. Yeah, agreed. And I, and I think if you just start doing one, whether if you start changing your diet, like, and you start to see like results, mm-hmm. I think it's easier than I get to the gym. You're like, if I'm do, putting in this work, why am I not like doing this other part? Yeah. And that, that's all might be even easier if you don't change your diet at all and you just start moving your body more mm-hmm. and you're like, Oh my gosh, like this feels good, but you know, like I'm trying to sleep more and like, how can I sleep more so I can do better at the gym? But if I'm doing that, like, how can I eat better so I can perform better at the gym? You know, start with one or the other, and then it starts to become a lot easier. Um, Yeah. I talk a lot about momentum with people. It's all mm -hmm. about momentum. And like, so you wake up in the morning, do something very simple that you wouldn't want to do. So like some people have a hard time just getting up in the morning on their first alarm. So I say, all right, get up and go. All you have to do is get up out of bed and I want you to go brush your teeth. And once you brush your teeth or you do something super simple like that, you start to gain momentum. Now you're like, okay, now I'm going to stretch or now I'm going to meditate or now I'm going to do some push-ups, or whatever it is. You start to gain that momentum and when you start building off of that, you start feeling better. You start making better decisions. That starts to become more ha- more of a habit. Um, so building momentum is um, something that I try to harp on and something that I always implement in my life because there's days where you get up, you just don't want to do anything. But it's just like, all right, I'm going to pick something super easy that I have no reason why I can't do this. So I'm going to go do this. And then after you do that, you feel you feel more accomplished, even if it's just slightly, that change in your brain is like, okay, I can do this today. I can, I can do more. All right. Let's what's next. Let's go. Let's do this. So that's, that's what kind of my philosophy, especially on days where, um, I just don't want to do anything and it gets me going and my day is much better as a result. If you were to write a book, Grady, it would be called momentum. You got very, <laughs> you got very jacked for your level of jackness wasn't all, all the way, but I feel like very few people got to get to see you jackness all the way. And I yeah. think you're pretty jacked at that, <laughs> that little spiel. Oh, that was awesome. I, I agree. Uh, it's just the little things. Um, and speaking of little things, well, let's talk about more myocytes. There you go. Oh, greatest transition ever. Myocytes, <laughs> a muscle cell. <laughs> and so um, going back then to the cellular level, of what insulin resistant is in a muscle, you know, we just kind of talked about why you should care about it in the first place. But there's essentially, you know, you can almost think about it as like four different theories on uh, what could cause insulin resistance. There's probably even more than that, but there's like four big theories. Uh, and you always need to keep it in context of what somebody's talking about. And sometimes, at least I find when, I try to actually read and understand scientific literature. They're not as specific in the paper as you'd like it to be. And I've definitely been like, in what context are you talking about this? Like, I really like to you, to the author, it might seem straightforward, but I have no idea what you're referring to. Um, So anyways, before I expand on that, I want to almost say like these four major theories that this, uh, review paper talks about is you could have insulin resistance in the muscle 
from having too many lipids within the muscle cell. That's one very common theory. Another theory is not specific, not just general lipids, but specifically um, increased levels of DAGs or diacylglycerols, which is a triglycerol or triglyceride, like on your blood lab, you might've seen with your doctor, that's tri, that's three, a DAG is two. So increase in DAGs or other bioactive small fats like acetyl, um, uh, acetyl coas and um, acetyl, you know, those types of things. Um, and, but that's an example of something that this paper didn't talk about specifically if that was in the cell or in the blood. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a big point. Uh, and I'll talk about that why in a second, as well as mitochondrial dysfunction in the muscle. So that's the third way is the, it could be rooted from mitochondrial dysfunction within the muscle cell itself. And what causes mitochondrial dysfunction to begin with? And then lastly, which is almost more of like a bigger picture is just deficit of extracellular glucose delivery, meaning your body isn't very good at giving and distributing uh, glucose anywhere else, but your muscles because of blood flow, because like literally efficiency of your heart or microvascular damage within your capillaries because diabetics can both have uh, microvascular and macrovascular damage. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, but in reality of those four subjects, it's probably a combination of all four. If I've learned anything (laughs) about through my education is that it's literally chances are everything is impacts everything. Yep. Everything causes everything. Right. Which is frustrating as a patient frustrating as a doctor mm-hmm. it's frustrating as a philosopher <laughs> um i've had lots of debates on what zero means recently but that's besides <laughs> the point of this podcast <laughs> so um those are kind of like the four big takeaways and four like headlines of what causes insulin resistance in muscles now grady uh when you hear and when you read through this um, increase of intracellular lipids within uh, the muscle cell. Uh, what did you think about what the authors were summarizing in this review article um, versus what you feel and think and see in the in your office with patients? You know, it's not like we do bi- cellular biochemistry with our patients, but just mm-hmm. the physiology of what these guys are saying. Yeah. So um, they don't really go specifically into what is putting the fat in the muscle cell, and True. so. Um, just to kind of expand on that, at least my opinion on how that gets there is when you have a higher amount of free fatty acids in the bloodstream, you're, you're, um, and when you have insulin resistance, you're going to have more free fatty acids in there because your body is producing those to help get those for energy for the cells because it's having a hard time getting that sugar into the into the cells and therefore it's going to use that cell is going to use fatty acids for energy and so if you're having more uh, fatty acids in there um, at least and this can be a you know a cycle or cyclical thing where the more fatty acids you have in there the more insulin resistant you are and the more insulin resistant you are the more free fatty acids that you're going to have in the cell so um, mm-hmm. there can be a reciprocal relationship there um, but at the same time um, like i said you're going to have um, with insulin resistance, more free fatty acids flowing around. Uh, But at the same time, in a situation where you are 
more ketogenic or carnivore type diet, you're also going to have more free fatty acids floating around because you don't have glucose to use for energy. You're using those free fatty acids. Um, so in that case, um, you may, I don't think there's enough definitive research to really say, but you may have some sort of insulin resistance with that cell, uh, with specifically muscle um, cells, because um, there's a lot of talk right now of muscle sparing and um, or glucose sparing with the muscles. So essentially um, what's going on there is this scenario of those free fatty acids getting into the cell and being utilized by that muscle cell for energy. And therefore it doesn't need the glucose. And so if you were to have a big shot of glucose hit the system, the muscle's like, hey, we're good. We got all these free fatty acids for energy. And so therefore it looks like um, a lot of insulin resistance because um, the glucose in the blood is gonna spike and it's not going to go down very quickly because the muscles are like, hey, we're good. We don't need all this sugar. We're going to burn all this, all this fatty acid. So it, it looks like um, insulin resistance, but it very quickly changes if you continue to have um, sugar. It changes back to, okay, we got all the sugar. We're going to use sugar now because it's much easier to burn um, than mm. that. You said a, a, two things there that I thought were really, really important. Uh, one is a comment again a little later, but you said, you know, these people like this article doesn't really talk about how those fats get in the, get in the cell. And that's literally almost like the point I wanted to make about this is that mm -hmm. there's this internal environment that we're trying to understand within happen cells and what happens within different types of cells, but that's not even very clear. But then you, there's a different discussion debates and arguments of what gets those things there in the first place. And that's where the diet comes in, like mm -hmm. you already kind of mentioned. And, uh, you know, that's where so many other factors come in. But A doesn't lead to B. And I think these people in this review article essentially also say this too. You're Just because high lipids in a muscle cell uh, does not mean that you are consuming high lipids in your diet. It doesn't mean you should avoid fat because fat will get in your muscle and muscle, high fat and muscle leads to insulin resistance and then insulin resistance, uh, cardiovascular complications and you die. Mm -hmm. That's like, it, it's not that linear by any means. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's really important. But then you were also saying uh, uh, the term glucose sparing. And then the examples that you thought that you said was really, really good. Uh, but I almost wanted to then expand a little further on what glucose sparing could really mean. And through a simple analogy that I used to use when I tutored biochemistry for other students. And so glucose sparing means it's this idea that we have glucose in our blood as diabetics. We should be very familiar with always checking that there's this constant level of glucose that needs to be maintained when things happen. And that, level drops or increases, then your body adapts to it. Mm -hmm. uh, but let's use the example of fight or flight. Let's use the example that you're in a sympathetic situation and you're about to run from a bear. Okay. Glucose sp sparing. Oh no, let's not use that. Uh, let's say that while in the middle of the night and your blood sugar was lower in the middle of the night, <laughs> essentially want to get, want to get to is low blood sugar, right? So glucose sparing with lower blood sugar would look like, okay, my liver is now creating glucose. There is now glucose that is getting pumped into my blood. 
But instead of your muscles trying to do the same thing and pump glucose into your blood, what you're trying to do is run away, right? You need, those muscles need that energy. So it's going to spare the glucose that's in your blood, that's in your body, by using the glycogen and the muscle that, and just intrinsically and all the components, the glycogen, everything else, uh, proteins even sometimes, to create glucose for itself and stay within the muscle. And the cell then doesn't take away glucose from the blood and the body. It spares it, and it then can use its own internal source of energy. That's what glucose sparing is. It's saying trying to not use the glucose that's in the blood because there's other sources and other chemistry going on that allows that cell to function without it. I like that. That's a great, great way to describe it. So, because uh, I think it can get very confusing, glucose sparing mm-hmm. versus, you know, all these other terms that we start using glucose a million different times and then start using glycogen and we start using then, uh, you know, glucokinase and I don't know, that was the first thing that came to my head and, uh, you know, all these other things and uh, it can get confusing. So again, the context of how we're talking about these things and then talking about diets is literally so important and you can't just start talking about this stuff out of the blue. Mm -hmm. Uh, So reeling it back in. This article talks a lot about how intracellular lipids cause insulin resistance and cites a whole bunch of different articles that say so. Mm-hmm. And to be objective, we're not, I'm not saying that there's not that out there. That, that is science that's been highly, highly published. So lipids and muscles could necessarily be bad. But there's something called the athletic paradox or athlete paradox where actually an athlete has higher concentrations of fat within and lipids within the muscle. And you and I were kind of talking about this a little before we even recorded, but I don't know about you, but I would rather try to have my metabolism mirror and like try to reflect something of an athlete than somebody of who's sedentary. Mm-hmm. You know, why would I want to understand and then emulate being a couch potato why would i want to emulate being a couch potato versus emulate somebody who's a triple jump athlete in the olympics and they have higher lipids in their muscle and their muscles can be explosive and their metabolism is on point they can burn calories they can be efficient with insulin um their the brain is functioning low gut dysfunction all these other things why would you not want to figure out how to emulate that and the fact that if you do think high fats in diet lead to high fats in blood, that leads to high fats in muscles, and therefore you should avoid fat and not eat fat, um, but then don't respect the actually athletes have higher levels of lipids in their muscle and yet have better insulin sensitivity and insulin resistance scores, then why, you know, that just is like mind blowing to me. And it's a paradox because they seem literally polar opposites and no one knows why the athlete paradox really exists. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and I think the point that people should take away from this, cause I'm assuming they're probably not everybody listening to this is a you know high level athlete, but at the same time you can be your own high level athlete. So whatever that means to you, like I said before, 
the consistency is key. So if you're consistently exercising and consistently working out, that's what an athlete does. They consistently train. They consistently are trying to improve and um, work their bodies. Um, so if you're doing that for you, whether that just means um, walking or running or uh, swimming, whatever it is, um, if you're doing that on a consistent basis, you're getting more to that spectrum of an athlete physiology. You may not be performing like at a, a high-level athlete, but your physiology is going to be uh, much closer to that. Wow. We need to say that. You are on the motivational train today, Doc. That's awesome. <laughs> be your own athlete. Who cares about um, being a high-performing athlete or a superstar? Uh, just because you wanted to be an NBA player, but you're 43 years old, there's no reason why you still can't play basketball mm -hmm. and still can't act in your mind as like, man, I'm going to be so good at basketball that my diabetes doesn't even know that I'm a star. Yeah. You, know, you know, there's be your own athlete, be your own, you know, hero of, uh, you know, of just your body, like just do it. And, mm -hmm. and, Man, I love that. Be your own athlete. We got to figure out how to use the word diabetes in there somehow and put it, put it on a shirt um, and then with your face on it. <laughs> uh, I bet you – have you been working on your motivational interviewing skills with your patients? Because it seems like I'm you're not, very – I'm just okay. fired up tonight, I guess. <laughs> I like it. Um, but, yeah, so just just be your own athlete. It's not comparing yourself to others. It's you versus you, and are you better – than you were yesterday, even if it's 1%. If that's 1% better sleep, that means you've had now three days in a row where you've got up and brushed your teeth and then stretched, uh, whatever it might be. You know, yoga is considered being an athlete. Walking is an athlete. You know, don't let, just freaking move. Freaking move. Mm -hmm. um, anyways, uh, I also thought this was interesting. Um, as they were talking about this intracellular um, lipid theory was that the role of triglycerides and this I'm assuming they're talking about in the blood. This is one of those examples that um, the context isn't that clear sometimes in articles. Mm -hmm. um, I'm assuming they were saying that when you have higher triglycerides, uh, typically people think higher triglycerides, that's on the lipid panel and heart disease. And we kind of talked about this last time and you went on really good uh, tangents last time about what a lipid panel could be used for. But these guys were essentially saying that triglycerides really are only a, a, an effective marker at dysfunctional muscle glucose metabolism, not glucose metabolism, not whole body, but how your muscles are using glucose metabolism. And when you look at triglycerides, that's what you should be thinking of. How are my muscles using glucose and therefore I can see that through my triglycerides in my blood. That's what these authors are saying um, near the end of 2017. And I think that's a very interesting point uh, to consider just because everyone is always obsessed with cholesterol and triglycerides. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I think if I remember correctly, they also stated, because they stated that, um, you know, most of your glucose is deposited into the muscle cells um, mm -hmm. at the same time a large portion of your lipids are stored in the uh, fat cells or sorry, the uh, muscle cells as well, because um, mm. you also use those uh, for energy. And so, um, you know, c connecting those two dots, as far as um, if you have high lipid levels in the blood, 
hatch, and that probably means that it's not getting into um, the cell of the muscles and or the muscles already have plenty of fat to burn and so they don't need any more of it and um, so again it's it's a good indicator for insulin resistance and just overall um, poor glucose metabolism um, but at the same time you can you can also take that information and say okay if I have poor uh, metabolism of glucose or insulin resistance at the muscle cells, then what do I need to do to help improve the um, insulin resistance or insulin sensitivity um, at that muscle cell? We've talked about that before, and we've talked pretty much this whole podcast about exercise because exercise stimulates um, the GLUT4 receptors, which then bring glucose in. And so mm -hmm. uh, it bypasses your need for insulin and so the insulin resistance becomes less of a player and therefore you can, um, you know, help improve that whole situation. That's exactly actually what I was about to get into. That, that, that was perfect because the, the bypassing of insulin to put GLUT4 on your cells and your muscles is huge. One of the theories or other theories specifically with um, DAGs and other, you know, acetyl-CoA's and other lipid type molecules is that essentially downstream i don't think they're at this point in this podcast we need to talk about the actual cell biology of the cascade of what happens to so what proteins and this and that afterwards but essentially the pathway ends up being that you are less likely to phosphorylate other proteins so that glut4 gets in your receptor with higher dag concentrations and acetyl coa you get lower ability to put that glute four or that you know monsters inc door that we've described in previous podcasts to be open to allow glucose into the cell therefore helping your glucose levels but like you said and talking about muscles and and working out pretty much this whole time if you do that that's going to bypass something like that and hence again the whole athlete's paradox if you have if they have higher fat cells or higher fat within their cell that is pretty poor at creating glute fours and putting it on the cell membrane, but yet the exercise, you know, well, or, may, or maybe that's part of the discussion on, on why there is a paradox and why you see that in the first place. Who knows? Maybe it's literally just this extreme bypassing. Mm -hmm. This is extreme, like saying F you to everything inside. I'm doing my own thing, <laughs> which is very, uh, very typical, or I guess uh, almost like classic of an athlete of saying, screw you, I'm doing it anyways, and figure mm -hmm. out a way to do it. So yeah. that's, so when you're an athlete, when you're your own athlete, you're saying, screw you to the ins of what's going on inside your cells. And I'm going to live a healthy life and I'm going to get my glucose under control, get my glucose into my cell, despite having high lipids and boom, I'm an athlete. I'm amazing. Glucose is under control. End of story. Give me the first place medal. <laughs> 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 oh man uh, but there's lots of other you know different mechanisms of of DAGs and lipids of that not just this whole phosphorylation and group 4 thing but plenty of other things when NF kappa B and other types of how inflammation can um, arise and cause it craziness but mm -hmm. um, I almost want to jump down to mitochondrial dysfunction within a muscle cell uh, so, Gray, why don't, why don't you kind of walk us through what that really means? Uh, or when you hear just that phrase, what is, what is dysfunction of mitochondria within a muscle cell mean to you? 
So when I hear mitochondrial dysfunction, I my brain automatically goes to what causes or what things can generate mitochondrial dysfunction. Um, and those things are simple in the fact that they're generic because um, inflammation and reactive oxygen species, which is somewhat a form of inflammation um, mm -hmm. to a certain degree, um, those things will disrupt your mitochondria's ability to um, do its job, which is producing energy. Um, and so that, that somewhat comes back to the diet because if you're eating a high inflammatory diet, you're going to have more inflammation, you're going to have more react reactive oxygen species, and that's going to impact your mitochondrial uh, function. Um, at the same time, um, if you have uh, an athlete who's overtraining, then that can create a lot of inflammation and uh, mitochondrial dysfunction. Uh, but other sources of inflammation, like um, uh, toxic exposure in your environment, um, whether that's your water, your air, you know what what's being uh, put on your skin, um, things like that can also create a lot of inflammation and reactive oxygen species. Um, but then also, you know, liver dysfunction because if the liver is not able to detoxify things, then those reaction, reactive oxygen species start to build up in the body and they create havoc everywhere. Hmm. And we'll talk more about the liver in just, you know, a few moments. But yeah, it's, it's nice because it's generic, but at the same time, it's not nice because it's generic. Exactly. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the mitochondria being the powerhouse of the cell, as, as everyone always says, I actually had a professor um, that used to say the mitochondria is the garden of death. <laughs> she used to like, she was a different kind of person. Uh, but she always said that to the point that mitochondria do much more than just be the powerhouse to sell and make ATP. Um, but anyways, so there are all these things that impact the function of mitochondria and in muscle cells, you actually have multiple mitochondria. You have lots of them. Um, and you actually can generate more depending on your activity level. And you've already kind of briefly touched on overtraining, but yeah, those reactive oxygen species, uh, cytokines and inflammation. Some people might've just be hearing cytokines for the first time with cytokine storms that they might've read with uh, articles with COVID. Uh, you know, not trying to link one to another, but just trying to give people a reference point. Mm -hmm. um, but so, and cytokines are just essentially chemical messengers that are um, inflammatory in nature. But you can have cytokines that, very few cytokines that are pro, that are anti-inflammatory, but most of them are pro-inflammatory. And that just wreck havoc on the dysfunction of your mitochondria to uh, work. And what that really means is that the mito a cell wouldn't be able to survive without the mitochondria. And it's almost like a really interesting benefit of being a functional medicine practitioner and thinking about the body this way because very few times would a traditional uh, doctor think, oh, that got it. Your mitochondria is messed up. That's what's causing your pain. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but trying to understand how these things are impacted um, is really important because you can tar if you can target these things and target 
how the membrane of the mitochondria works or how um, you're making more or what's stopping the genesis of more mitochondria that will fill in the gaps or can't fill in the gaps to certain types of care. Uh, for example, the, in movies, when people died of cyanide, what cyanide would do is you would bite the capsule and it would literally stop some chemicals in your mitochondria from working. Like that's what that chemical did. It stops the transport of electrons, yada, 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 and your mitochondria stops working and within seconds, you die. Mm -hmm. So if your mitochondria stop working in only a couple seconds and you die, those things are freaking important. Mm -hmm. And so then taking the approach of trying to limit reactive oxygen species, of trying to keep inflammation down, of trying to have the right nutrients um, for your mitochondria uh, and specifically targeting within your muscles. And like you said, overtraining, undertraining, these types of things, you know, that's really important to move forward um, in, in those conversations as well. And something that maybe you should think about as an individual advocating for yourself or if your provider saying, what is that? Is that hogwash or should I actually learn about it? Mm-hmm. And uh, you should, de- anyone should definitely take the time and try to understand mitochondrial dysfunction and how you can support it. Mm-hmm. So, so anyways, that's, but that's probably somewhat go really heavy on mitochondrial dysfunction and saying that's the root cause of insulin resistance. And that's the root cause of all this different disease is mitochondrial dysfunction. And I think that's a little harder to prove and show right now, but it's definitely something that I think like the last theory uh, is just defect of extracellular glucose and just um, lack of getting glucose within the cell through blood flow and things like that. It's more of almost like a generic thing. I think targeting, insulin resistance from the conversation of lipids and different type of lipids within the muscle is a much more impactful and conversation that we can continue having uh, because we can easily see, uh, okay, our diet does this, that happens, that happens, opposed to the mitochondria is a little more loose, I mm-hmm. suppose. Yeah, it's, it's a chicken or the egg type of thing because you can say, oh, mitochondria dysfunction is causing this. Well, what if that is also causing mitochondria dysfunction? So, um, just like with anything in the body, it's never that simple. You can never just hone in on one thing and say, Hey, this is the cause. It's almost always multifactorial. You have to go from it from, um, several different angles and, um, you have to look at the big picture. You, you, it's, it's never a bad idea to look at, look small, but you always have to think big, um, when you're dealing with the body. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Uh, but one of those things that you've mentioned was about liver and detoxification. Uh, actually, you just saw a, a doc on YouTube say how uh, supporting liver and kidney detoxification is just like snake oil. And it didn't like rub me the wrong way, but it, I, it does, those stuff definitely have a bad reps, but it's like there's definitely a lot more literature out there to say how you can support those things. Um, and that is my excellent transition to start talking about insulin resistance in the liver. <laughs> so anyways, uh, obviously from that transition and, and my commentary, uh, both great and I think you can support liver detoxification. Yeah. But, but anyways, so, uh, the most common definition. So now we're just moving cell types and tissue types and, depending on how long, I mean, this podcast, we've been jabbing a while already. I don't think we were going to even get to the diets. I think we'll just probably stop at 
once we're done with tissues and make this a part two, like a part one of two type thing. Um, but anyways, because I know you got to get to bed, Grady. I know you love your sleep. <laughs> <laughs> anyways, uh, going on and talking about the liver. And so the most common definition of insulin resistance within a hepatocyte or a liver cell is the failure for insulin to suppress hepatic glucose production or HGP, which in reality is gluconeogenesis. So mm. uh, your liver's ability to create glucose and spit it out to the blood and the rest of the body. Uh, Cause that's what it does during in between meals. That's what it's doing it during when you're fasting at night and sleeping. That's what happens when you don't get any food for several days and eventually it'll get depleted but it literally is supposed to give this constant drip of, of glucose out. And so your liver's ability to respond to insulin to say, hey, stop making it glucose is what is classically defined as insulin resistant within a hepatocyte. Any thoughts on just that definition there? Yeah, I thought, I think it's really important to highlight that because, because of the liver's role in glucose metabolism but but also glucose homeostasis because um that your liver is the buffer so you know a bunch of sugar is coming in from your meal you don't want all that sugar in your bloodstream because that's dangerous it's going to kill you if all that blood sugar hits it all at once so your liver is that buffer and so when that buffer no longer responds as well to the insulin and therefore it's continuing glucose production and not necessarily inhibiting it after a meal because you don't need all that excess excess glucose. Um, then it's getting you into um, not only insulin resistance but also high blood sugar. And then the high blood sugar is where the damage starts to come in. Mm-hmm. So imagine this then: so you eat a high glucose meal, and you already have insulin resistance. You have high glucose your body recognizes through different mechanisms, actually multiple mechanisms, um, that we should create insulin, right? So we can utilize that glucose. Now, and with whole body, that insulin resistance, so you are insulin resistant, your muscles are insulin resistant, so it's you need more insulin to get that glucose in those muscles. But now, not only are you having high glucose and high insulin, but now at simultaneously, the glucose isn't going in the muscle, higher insulin levels, the insulin then hits the liver and the liver doesn't recognize as well that insulin simultaneously. So it doesn't get its signal to stop producing the glucose. Mm -hmm. So now on top of having high insulin, higher glucose in the blood, you are then continuing to create more glucose and adding that to then this syrupy chemical mixture um, that is in the blood that continues to raise glucose. Um, you know, and that's part of the pathophysiology of type two diabetes and insulin resistance and how that, you know, you could be diagnosed and get in really bad shape as if you were continued down that path. But anyways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to put it, um also kind of a big picture too because we also we we on this podcast we talk a lot about the glucose response and the glucose homeostasis at right after a meal but at the same time um you i have patients where 
Um, like I, for example, I had a patient last week where they hadn't eaten six, since breakfast. This is a type two diabetic um, who hasn't been following instructions and um, they ate breakfast. And then I think they had a candy bar like shortly after breakfast, but they hadn't eaten since then. And they saw me at like, I think it was like six or seven at night. And mm. we checked it. We checked it in the office and it was like 290. And wow. so just because he hadn't eaten all day, the blood sugar still hadn't come down yet. And so, you know, looking at this information, it's pretty easy to tell that his liver is still producing sugar. So it's still kicking that out and it's keeping that sugar, that blood sugar high um, and it's not coming back down. So it's just maintaining that high blood sugar because it's not responding to that insulin. Wow, I think that puts a, a really easy picture in everyone's brain. Um, wow, that was a great example. I hope your patient continues to work with you and gets better because 290 for type two is wildly high. Mm -hmm. Especially how after long a long he, fast like that. How long has he been type two? Um, he's or, been type two for a while. Um, and you know, he kind of, it kind of go, goes in and out of, of his diet. Um, so hopefully I'm hoping he's got a little bit of incentive right now. Um, so I'm hoping that he kind of gets kicks it into gear and then I'm going to try and keep him motivated to keep that in gear, to keep it going. So this can be a long-term change. And so he doesn't mm -hmm. go back and yo-yo back again. Side note, uh, just a tangent, man, if, if that kind of scribes you or if, you know, your blood sugar is out of control like that and you're type two pre-diabetic type one, and you're afraid of our current situation this year of COVID-19 and, and staying healthy and supporting your immune system, that is how you protect yourself, mm -hmm. controlling that. That is number one. Uh, if you're not doing that, but doing everything else that media, like you are missing a really big part of how to keep you healthy. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I just felt like I had to say that because that like your metabolic health is way more linked to your immune system than anyone and everyone else yeah. um, for the most part. And so, especially as a diabetic. So, yep. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. I just want to expand on that a little bit because like, okay. <laughs> um, like, like you said, if you're, if your metabolism or your physiology isn't under control, especially with diabetes, your immune system is significantly impacted. And it doesn't matter if you're wearing a mask doesn't matter if you're sanitizing everything, you are going to get exposed some way. So if your physiology isn't working for you, then um, you're, put, you're setting yourself up for you know, failure potentially. So um, just because, um, like I said, just because you're wearing a mask, just because you're sanitizing everything, isn't going to protect you from every scenario. Um, we're being exposed to stuff all the time. And um, so the best way to prevent those types of infections or, um, you know, anything serious from happening is to support your physiology day in, day out, and be consistent with it. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely say and echo that. Yeah, for sure, the complications and, and supporting your physiology and supporting anything bad from happening is, is that. Like that is, 
And what we really haven't talked about any specifics about anything. We're not even going to, as time has progressed on this episode, we're not even going to talk about diet today. We're literally, <laughs> we've literally just only talked about muscles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and we've talked about blood sugar enough in literally every episode. Yeah. But controlling your sugars, controlling your metabolism, controlling your glucose response and homeostasis, moving your body, moving your muscles so that they become more insulin sensitive, uh, being your own athlete. You know, that's protecting yourself. That's longevity. That's what it's all about. And, you know, those are things that anyone and everyone can do. And you have, if you decide to, that power is on you. You have that superpower. You have, mm-hmm. can be empowered in that way. And I just wish everyone, like, if there was one thing I wish could come out of 2020 in terms of health care is that people and it is happening to some. Some more people are like, I need, like, people come to my office, like, I need to take care of better my health. Like, I have all these risk factors. Like, mm-hmm. that's a very small percentage. But if a lot of more people got that in their head, that would be amazing. And moving forward would protect everyone and all of us way more better, too. Mm-hmm. But, anyways, so this was all just from talking about what. <laughs> <laughs> what glucose output is during insulin resistance and defining insulin resistance within a liver. <laughs> um, so getting it back reeled in, what I wanted to say was that there's a strong connection, you know, essentially everything we've talked about, there's a strong connection between um, the glucose production of your liver and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And we were talking a little bit about non-alcoholic liver or non-alcoholic fatty liver disease last episode and the adipose tissue threshold theory. Uh, We were talking about just how you don't need to be drinking lots of alcohol to make this function of your liver. to get all messed up. Uh, And it's almost as if, you know, once you start down this path again, chicken or the egg, but it becomes much harder uphill battle to fight these things. And, if you do have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, depending on the severity, it might be pretty hard to reverse. Your liver might get cirrhosis. But uh, if it's just starting to develop, you can still have positive changes on your glucose production from your liver uh, and try to help those fats that are sticking on to the on the liver. And I think, again, when we start talking about these things, it's easy. We've, I don't think you and I have bashed fat by any means. But it's mm-hmm. easy to say all these things and be, walk away with a message of, oh, yeah, fat is bad. And, and uh, I don't think either you or I think that's the case. But there's a very strong connection between non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and insulin resistance, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and with, with that non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, even if it is in some of the later stages, your liver is one of the organs that is one of the most resistant or resilient organs in the body. And so by making changes, you know, getting your life back on track, making those healthy choices, um, you're going to be improving the function of that organ from whatever's left over. So if you have, you know, 20% left, you might as well improve the function of that 20% and have a higher quality of life because of it. Um, It's not, there's never, at least in my book, there's never a lost cause. And you can always improve the function that you do have. Matter does have limitations. 
sometimes we can only do so much, but at the same time, um, use and utilize to your max capacity what you do have left. Right, right. And taking it in a non-diabetic physiology thought, uh, so in a, I, I love this word, I don't know why, um, and normal glycemic people. <laughs> I just think it's a, <laughs> uh, a funny way to describe non-diabetics. Yeah. Uh, and, and normal glycemic people, uh, if this wasn't clear before, uh, so insulin on the liver is supposed to shut down gluconeogenesis. It's supposed to shut down that glucose production. Um, and when, just like how in muscle, if there is higher lipids within the hepatocyte and higher lipids on top of the liver, uh, it makes it, the, lip, the liver actually then uh, transports more triglycerides. It ends up transporting more lipid molecules, LDLs, ends up transporting more cholesterol. Um, there's more lipogenesis or creation of fats normally when insulin um, acts on the liver and those that's in that environment. However, um, in the liver or hepatocyte that's more insulin resistant, you're still going to produce those things just like in a normal function of insulin on a liver, but now the glucose production isn't being shut down. Mm-hmm. And then continuing to elevate both more lipids and more glucose. And it then continues to add, it's almost like there are a million different ways for the body to increase the glucose and to make it harder to use the glucose and make it harder to use the insulin to get the glucose in the cell. They all amplify one another, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, But essentially, if your liver is insulin resistant, you're going to continue to produce lipids, continue to make it a different type of environment for your whole body while producing glucose. And that in itself, uh, I think is important just to recognize as you start to read through this literature. Again, I don't think fats are bad, but understanding how and why those lipids might be used and why your body's producing them and not being saying, all right, let's just minimize everything. Let's all just take statins. Let's all do all these other things. Figuring out why there's insulin resistance in the first place. Figuring out how you can get rid of it. Figuring out how you can use your diet, which we're going to talk about eventually, you know, or continue to talk about. We've been talking about like for 20-something episodes now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're, we will continue to discuss um, how you can use diet and all those other things to reduce those states. But I think talking about the physiology of it, um, it should be step one at some level, just hearing it one time uh, and moving forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think understanding the process helps make the decision to make a change a little bit easier because now you understand what's going on and how what you're going to be implementing is actually going to be helping you. Um, mm-hmm. I think understanding um, really provides not necessarily motivation, but a little bit more clarity. And therefore, with clarity, you have more confidence in what you're going to be doing is actually going to make a change for yourself. Right. Yeah, when you have that clarity, when you're invested, just when you're invested in it, uh, it's easier to make those decisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've never, what, what did somebody offer me recently that I was like, why would I ever just have that by itself? Um, I think it was like a zebra cake or something. <laughs> but I was like, no, <laughs> like, not because I judge you or I think it's like, I just understand enough to be like, 
nah, I'm, I'm okay. Mm-hmm. Like my cells don't need that. Uh, anyways, but yet my cells need margaritas. Like I talked about earlier. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> um, anyways. Uh, so one of the last things they these authors then review talked about in this review, um, is adipose tissue. And they didn't say a whole heck of a lot in their summarization of the literature that I looked at. Uh, the biggest takeaway I got from this was that the, you know, your white adipose tissue, because you have white and brown, most of your adipose or your fat is white and is less metabolically active than your brown. And depending on how obese you are, will change on how much, um, percent of mass is white adipose tissue so that then changes things but white adipose tissue doesn't use a whole lot of glucose um, intake you know it only takes about three percent of glucose clearing or rather of the available glucose that from a meal it only takes about three percent because then it would take it from other forms most likely from the forms of fat uh, you know and so Besides that and saying brown adipose is more metabolically active, I think the biggest thing I took away from their summarization, which I think is a fact that needs to be talked about more, is that your adipose and your fat cells are actually not just connective tissue, but are as an immune cell as well as it's a, and it's, you know, part of your metabolism. And it's just way more than just stuffing for your body to keep warm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's, it's a it's a you know traditionally it's thought of as just a storage unit um, but like i said it's part of your immune system because it produces a lot of cytokines so that can create a lot of inflammation in and of itself so increased adipose tissue or increased fat is going to increase the amount of inflammation that's around flying around the body um, but then also you ha- it's a hormone factory it's going to affect your hormones um and when you have insulin resistance on top of a lot of fat cells, you're going to have a lot of um, aromatase activity. And aromatase is an enzyme that converts um, testosterone into estrogen for, um, for males. And in females, you have a, a different enzyme. I'm blanking on the enzyme right now. But in fat cells, that will convert testosterone or estrogen into testosterone. So essentially, you're turning... Um, males into females and females into males when you're adding a lot of adipose, adipose tissue and insulin resistance in combination, which if you have a lot of adipose tissue, there's a high likelihood that there's insulin resistance going on. Um, so it can affect your hormones too. So if you have a lot of hormonal issues, um, this is something you need to really look at and pay attention to. Mm-hmm. So I think from from here that you know maybe that's all we will say for this episode and we'll talk more about what these authors say about different types of um diets uh after that and and give our two cents about those uh that definitely was way more of a a fluid conversation but i thought i I always love reading and rereading physiology Mm -hmm. um because the more you think about this more you hear about this from different perspectives the more you can summate your own thoughts, the more you can summate what's actually happening, the more you can interpret it from different providers, from different specialists, and try to understand how to use it for your life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, walking away, I thought, you know, 
And when it comes to insulin resistance and muscles, for example, I think it's almost kind of hard to just say, these are the main insulin resistant models. But, you know, rereading it this way from these authors was maybe a little easier, but, oh, okay, like it's just one, two, three, four, you know, it's, it's, it's these things. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important in, in that way. So, but, you know, next time we'll talk about different diets. We'll talk about like how different fats affect things, you know, why omega-3s are important. You know, there's lots of discussion to be had both that these authors have and that you and I will continue to have um, based off what they say and, and what off other authors say as well. Mm-hmm. So um, that being said, we already have done burst our beta cells. So let's be, so let's be a little positive. <laughs> so Grady, did you free, feel free from diabetes or what was like a diabetic win for you recently? Um, Let's see. Sometimes it's always harder to recognize, at least for me, recognize the positive things. Um, That's why we're taking a moment to be present. Exactly. Think about it. I don't know. I feel like in a general sense, now that I've started that new program that I talked about, it has kept me more accountable because it has like specific days that says, all right, you're doing this on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And while I don't necessarily follow like the days, cause sometimes I go more days than what the um, program says. Um, it keeps me more consistent because before um, I was being a lot more inconsistent. I wasn't, you know, going every day or at least going at a consistent rate, whether that was you know once every other day or every day or um, you know, whatever it was, it wasn't consistent. And so the results that I was getting weren't very good. My blood sugar metabolism wasn't as good as I know it can be. And so now that I've started that, it's definitely helped my glucose metabolism, my blood sugar stability. And I'm also, you know, seeing more results um, visual wise. So that's always nice. Hey. Um, Yeah. So. Go on. So, I was gonna uh, say get, getting rid of that quarantine gut. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely nice being back in the gym. Um, I'm just not one of those people that can do body weight workouts and feel satisfied from it. Um, I need need to lift heavy things and throw weight around. Um, <laughs> so I'm happy to be back, and I'm glad I decided to start one of my old programs because it's um, it's been helping out in a lot of different ways. Hmm. What about nice. you? Well, I'm glad that uh, you're feeling that's impacting you in a, in a good way. Um, in a, well, just a first, I, I saw my endocrinologist today. Um, you know, it's been a while since I've seen him, probably six months, uh, mostly because of COVID, uh, but also insurance changes and things like that. But with everything going on, you know, I was worried about seeing my A1C. I haven't got blood labs on myself in a while, and um, especially having dental. I think, you know, when I had those dental surgeries, I think we talked, I might've talked about it on the podcast, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I think I did cause I talked about it first, my beta cells and how it totally messed me up. Yep. And number, so I guess a couple of things that have been diabetic wins. One, this is the second time I've seen this endocrinologist and I freaking love him. Like finding an endocrinologist you can get along with is, is really important. And somebody who is invested into understanding my diabetes and caring as much as uh, I am and as many as you are or as much as you are, Grady, or many of our listeners, you know, getting one that respects my decisions 
my thought process, my choices, as well as then just respects me as a, you know, a colleague, whether they think I'm a colleague or not. Um, you know, having all of that is, is great. And so uh, seeing him was just good, but getting my A1C uh, was 6'4", which I was really happy with. I would have taken a much higher number because of all the anesthesia that I was put under with my teeth, with the steroids I had to go under, because that all messed me up for so long because those steroids and steroids and cortisol raise your blood sugar. And apparently anesthesia just screws with your autonomic <laughs> nervous system so much that it just whacks you over the head and stress and plenty of other things, you know. Mm-hmm. I totally thought it was going to be way higher than it was. So I was definitely happy with that. So that was definitely a win. And then um, just a general win, I would say, uh, relating to my diabetes is just starting to work out again more too. Uh, you know, I've been running pretty consistently throughout all of this, but getting back to the gym feels nice. I just joined a, a new uh, workout regimen myself and uh, it does a lot more Olympic type lifting and things like that. And I've never done Olympic lifting and oh my goodness moving weight around and doing those complex movements is so much fun but uh, definitely going into it I had to humble myself and say can't use a lot of weight as I figure this out because man it it takes the thing that about Olympic lifting that is really cool is that it's both it's an art there was both there's a masculine and femininity there's acceleration deacceleration a yin and yang to all of this and within the same movement it's like how and just trying to get my brain to move that way because to, for me lifting weights and deadlifting has always just been like let's go you know <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, just this pure like one side of things and it's a little bit of both there's a lot more finesse there's so much other of this stuff so it's been really fun to do new things um get my blood sugars in control while doing them and then see the benefits throughout the day and uh it's, it's, so just a win i guess for my overall health is doing something different yeah, you know, I would do it myself. So yeah, it's always exciting to change up um, the type of exercise, do something new, new do mm-hmm. something new and challenging, and um, learning a new skill because those movements are very skillful and mm. um, very complex, like you said. So you're challenging your brain at the same time. Oh yeah, so that's always good. Oh yeah. It was also funny too. Cause I, before I even started chiropractic school, I, I think it was like somewhere in college, I stopped shrugging and I stopped <laughs> doing shrugs because I would, whenever I shrugged, it created this cervical rotation. Uh, it just this, I couldn't not just turn my head when I did a shrug and I was like, well, that doesn't seem right. Yeah. And, um, and so I stopped doing shrugs years and years ago, but shrugging is a really important skill for my brain to do with all these lifts too. Um, and so I can shrug fine and not my neck be all jacked up. But anyways, yeah, it's a learning a skill. That's something that I hope a lot of people just continue to do. I get, man, last tangent. Uh, I had a patient <laughs> 90 years old and like, sure, his physical health wasn't the best. But this guy was nine years old, and I've seen people in their 30s to 60s have worse spines than he did. And I got so excited that he was stressed every day. He moved so much, and he continued to use his brain. That's by far why he's thriving at the age he is. Uh, He he continued to, you know, uh, make things and then edit things and, you know, trying to be as generic as possible. And, And he just continued to use his brain and skills throughout life and he took care of his body. It was just so dang exciting to see mm-hmm. um, somebody thriving in that way, um, especially more so than maybe of their peers. Um, but anyways, 
wins for the day. Get excited when old people do well. <laughs> and, and move your, the dang body. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, next episode, we'll talk more about specific diets and how fats can be in those take a part and either negatively or positively impact things and what to be considered, especially when reading literature, as well as in future episodes, uh, we have a couple of guests lined up. So we're excited for that too. Um, and actually I'm really excited and yeah, just stay tuned for those types of things and, uh, appreciate as always everyone listening, uh, giving us private messages and just interacting with us in the ways that they have. And, it's just an honor just to be able to talk to some people this way. Yeah, definitely. We, we really appreciate it. And we'll catch you on the next one. Peace. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you found value in today's conversation, we would appreciate it if you gave a five-star review. It really helps us branch out our community and get our message across to those who really need to hear it. If you want to interact with us on social media, you can follow us on The Die Buddies Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or moral outrages, you can email us at thediebuddiespodcast at gmail.com. Thanks.